0: On today's episode of the TV Yearbook, we discuss the philosophy of destiny, the science of shadow and size, and feral, domesticated, long, medium, and short-haired cats. So don't touch that dial. The TV Yearbook starts now. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the TV Yearbook, a podcast about the best and worst episodes of iconic television shows. I am your first host, James. Hey,
1: James, I am your second host, Greg. And in each episode of the TV Yearbook, we pick a popular TV show from the past, and we use the internet to find its best episode and its worst episode. Then we will discuss it and provide analysis of a certain quality of both of these episodes through the lens of today. And just like your high school yearbook gave superlative awards such as Most Likely to Cure Cancer Ooh. and Least Likely to Cure Bacon, at the end of the show, we will share our superlative awards with you, our list.
2: Right, Dom? That's right, Greg. And I'm your third co host, Dom. In season two of the TV yearbook, we've been looking at sci fi shows from the late 1980s into the 1990s. Our show today ran from 1993 to 2002, had two movies, a reboot season, and then another, and a spin off, The Lone Gunman. 16 Emmy Awards, 5 Golden Globes, 2 SAG Awards, a Peabody Award, a lot of other stuff, The (laughs) X-Files. All right, The X-Files follows FBI agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully who work on paranormal and unexplained cases. Fox Mulder played by 90s superstar David Duchovny has a special addiction to this work as his kid's sister was abducted by aliens when he was young and this drives his passion. Scully played by Gillian Anderson in her breakout role is a medical doctor and assigned by the FBI brass to keep tabs on Mulder at first but eventually she comes to experience the supernatural and extraterrestrial for herself. This is one of the most beloved 90s shows, and it is the undisputed best dramatic show Fox has ever created for television. Undisputed. Whoa, undisputed. It's right there on the internet.
0: You do realize that Fox did have So You Want to Marry a Millionaire. (laughs) I don't. I was not aware. Do you guys remember that show? Yeah. No. No. Yeah, it was, the premise was a bunch of women, it's a dating show, are competing for a guy who's a millionaire. But then, at the end, he's not a millionaire. (laughs) Ooh, heavy on the drama. Yeah, I thought that was
1: called Joe Millionaire. That's not something I should know.
2: (laughs) Be careful where you plant your flag. The X-Files, I would say the X-Files undisputed at least until 24 enters the picture. Greg, you want to tell us the 90-second plot line for the best episode, which is Season 3, Episode 4, Clyde Brookman's Final Repose? good art. Let's
1: get after this 90 second recap. So our best episode takes place in the Minneapolis area and we find Clyde Brookman played by Peter Boyle and he randomly bumps into a man on the street who we later find out to be the main serial killer from the show. The killer heads to a fortune teller, kills her, while stating very plainly that he's not in control of his actions. He kills many others in a grisly and semi-occultic manner through the episode and the police are baffled. Mulder and Scully are brought in. And so is Yappy, a local Minnesota psychic who is vague with his pronouncements. So back to Clyde. He can see the future of people's deaths. And after he discovers another body, because he knew where to locate it, he chats with Mulder and Scully, and then he finds another body because of his gift, which he, of course, thinks is a curse. Mulder wonders about how Clyde's gift works. He wonders about his own death, and Clyde describes this maybe death, that it occurs in a hotel kitchen. Mulder steps in a pie, and then a knife comes at him from behind. (laughs) And eventually, the killer runs into Clyde, kills a cop who was protecting Clyde. And then leaves Clyde alone because Clyde told him it's not his time yet. Mulder and Scully eventually chase him into a hotel kitchen where Mulder steps on a pie. And then he gets attacked from behind. But just in time, Scully shoots the serial killer just before he kills Mulder. And the episode ends with Clyde overdosing on pills,
0: dying by suicide. Whoa. Kind of a sad ending. That was almost exactly 90
1: seconds.
0: That's a rarity. I believe it was 87 if I'm going by my own clock. We're getting better at this. I think so. It's pretty good. What's a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about you. When I, when this started and it starts with Peter Boyle, I was so happy to see him. Oh,
2: yeah. I mean, when you think of Peter Boyle, what do you think of? I recognize his face. I wouldn't have known his name, but his face right away, it brought up for me the dream team. Christopher Lloyd, Michael Keaton. He believes himself to be Jesus. It's a story of uh, mentally ill patients uh, on the run. And this is one of the classic 80s comedies of our generation.
0: Wow. I only remember seeing the cover art of that when (laughs) I would go to Blockbuster with my dad. Oh. I was never allowed to. It is worth your while. I have never heard of that film before. I think like probably everyone else in the world, I mean, Peter Boyle. While you were sleeping. Yeah, James, me too. No, what? Oh, no?
1: Not? <laughs> what is while you were sleeping? It's a Sandra Bullock romantic comedy from
0: 1993. Actually, I'm not sure. I think Sandra Bullock was in it, though. Uh, anyway, Peter Boyle came into pop culture through the show Everybody Loves Raymond, of course. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But I always think of him in the movie Young Frankenstein. He played the monster. And one of the things I liked about that is he joined... Peter Boyle playing the monster Frankenstein joined an elite group of actors who have played Frankenstein throughout mm-hmm. the years. And one of those is a guy by the name of Tom Noonan, who is a very accomplished actor. He's been in lots of things. Namely, he played Frankenstein in the movie Monster Squad, <laughs> which also oh, starred Duncan Regehr. Who played Ronin. So many connections here (laughs) from our Star Trek Next
2: Generation episode.
0: Yeah, I'm really disappointed in myself that I didn't make the Ronin connection during our Sequest episode. I had one all ready to go, but I just Our listeners will forgive
2: you. (laughs)
0: Maybe. (laughs) Anyway, I really just liked seeing Peter Boyle. He's... In the convenience store, and he doesn't know how to pronounce the word Lollapalooza. Yeah, that
2: was pretty hilarious. He
0: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> was like,
2: Lollapazula? What the hell is Lollapalooza? <laughs> <laughs> it was good. And
0: then I just like the contrast that he's buying a lottery ticket. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. a psychic buying a lottery ticket, just really made me smile. It was hilarious. And then losing <laughs> and then, throughout, yeah, though. Yeah, he kept yeah. losing.
1: <laughs> he has the ability to see some things, but not yeah. other things.
2: So, As all psychics apparently struggle with. My favorite line of his was early on when they consult him on the murder. The first, the yappy psychic, who was kind of, you know, this flamboyant stage psychic or whatever, talks about the victim was, you know, obviously they were making love, but maybe it was consensual. And so when they bring in Peter Boyle's character, he said they're asking him about that. and He's like, sometimes it just seems that everyone's having sex except for me. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. Great time. This
1: investigation, Dom, you mentioned Yappy. The Minneapolis Police Department brings in a television psychic to help him solve these murders. I just find it absolutely
0: absurd. Well It's the 90s. They say in the show that he had a track record. He had helped on other cases. And I want to know about the first case, <laughs> where it's like, Wilkins, what are we
1: going to do? And Wilkins is like, now I know I'm outside of the box here, Captain. <laughs> but I was watching TV at 2 a.m. last night, and I got a thought and $84 later <laughs> I'm convinced oh but also the thing with yappi he as Mulder and Scully kind of say later on they criticize him saying he's just saying overly vague stuff that almost anything can mean anything to anyone and anyone can make that connection and so when he walks into the room and starts like sensing things and starts saying like looks like a white man with facial hair or not Could have been... He he may have went to a park or was near a park or heard of a park. (laughs) Park adjacent. (laughs) And and it reminds me of that show from like 2000 called Crossing Over. I don't remember who the host was, but all I remember is... John Edwards. With John Edwards. And all I remember is Will Farrow playing him, and he's just doing that very thing. He's like, I'm sensing that someone over in this side of the room knows someone. And it's a person, (laughs) it's a man or a woman, maybe a child. (laughs) And and that's that's what Yaffe was doing when he was walking in yeah. and it was absurd because he's helping the police uh no
0: yeah i'm glad he was there but greg you talked about the minneapolis the police department consulting him when you're at your wits end and there's no clues you're reaching for anything you can let's bring in a psychic they were at the crime scene for five minutes before they called him in <laughs> it's like well we have a body but we better get Yappy into <laughs> We have no leads. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked him. I, I liked Yappy. I thought he was really funny. He was like a real-life prairie dog. A tattoo. Somewhere on his body. Maybe the tattoo has a facial hair. I think. I looked him up. His name was Jap Broker. <laughs> what? And this was his only credited role. No way. He's in a bunch of other stuff, like shorts, but he was all uncredited. I was, I was sad for him. I thought this was a great performance. It was memorable. He made the most of his time on well, screen. certainly it was memorable. He did not leave a mark with a resident
1: skeptic, Agent Scully. No, something told me, Scully. Something is telling me this guy's for real. Oh, so now you're psyching I want to take a moment to talk about Mulder and Scully, specifically their professional relationship. I think that both of them have just the most smooth and dulcet of voices because when they walk into a room, it's like, it's like my fifth grade math teacher and it just makes you want to <laughs> fall right asleep because the way they're talking is so soft-spoken but yet authoritative. When Dana Scully walks into a room, her presence is not just noted. I feel like when she walks in a room, even though Mulder is the one who's the most interested with the paranoia and everything, she owns that room. And I think she is like the true adult in the room. And I think she's amazing. Her tone is awesome. And the work that she does in the show is
0: always unbelievable. Did your math teacher look like Dana Scully? Uh,
1: Mr. Holloway did not Mr. look like <laughs> Dana Scully.
2: <laughs> I have only one dream. I dream it every night.
0: You're not one of those people who turns everything into a sexual symbol, are you? One of the things I really liked about this episode was, yes, it was about this serial killer, but there seemed to be much more of a heart to this episode that the writer was trying to really get at some deep philosophical questions, but not necessarily answer them. So when there's a scene kind of in the first third where Mulder is with Clyde and he's talking about his gift and just urging him like you can see these things like you should be able like you should be helping people just urging him to action and he doesn't want to do that like he's very paralyzed he doesn't want to help he asks Mulder if
2: Do you want to know how you're going to die? Yeah. Yes I would.
0: No, you don't. But then he doesn't end up telling him, keeps it to himself, Mm -hmm. and he raises the question. How could I see the future if it didn't already exist?
1: But if the future is written, then why bother to do anything?
0: Now you're catching on. But then in the same breath, he wonders out loud that he's kind of paralyzed. He's like, what if I help this person and then they don't end up doing this and creating a you know some kind of invention that saves the world or what if i do this and it creates a monster that he's just paralyzed by this paradox or creates a time machine
1: and goes back in time and kills his great-great-grandmother right and so he is never
0: born at all it's gone i lost a vision
1: someone is blocking me
0: Obviously, there's not an answer and they're not trying to answer this, but I found it interesting that Peter Boyle's character Clyde is even troubled by this because even in his own experience, he has had visions that haven't
2: come true. You know, he has this gift. He's kind of a superhero in a way. He chooses the daytime nine to five job as insurance salesman to try to save these people. And at this point, what is he? Is he 60 in this at this age, 55, something like that? And he has done this, we presume, his whole life trying to save these people. I presume there are times where he doesn't know if it's if it comes true or not. He can only be there present for the death of so many people.
1: Dom, you mentioned about the gift and the curse. Like, this is a gift. But if it's a gift... If it's truly a paranoid x file situation, it's a really crappy gift. It's a really depressing gift. It's an anxiety ridding gift because you never know when these visions are going to come. Because all he wants to do is just win the lottery and live a life in peace. And he can't like, that's the most important thing to him because he's buying tickets all the time. But for the one thing he wants to see the future for, he can't actually get that. So it's really a tragic figure in this in this story.
2: It absolutely is. I mean, he, I mean, I, I thought the writing was excellent. The character development for an hour TV Episode was amazing. I understand why this episode is so highly praised. The dialogue is great. But this concept of free will, I mean, the the serial killer, the murderer, at one point, they talk about the profile that he believes himself to be a puppet, that he's not responsible for his own actions in a way. And kind of the philosophy that we're up against here is basically that is all of our action is everything predetermined. Do we actually have any free will? In making choices in our lives. And it's such a weird concept to to imagine that we don't have free will, that anything I say or do is predetermined, because if you're following me around and you're looking at me, nothing of my life appears to be predictable at this point. But you know this this idea that our actions there's really nothing we can do to change that I, I think flies in the face of everything that the American identity wants to believe. But here we here we have this tragic character Willie Loman, insurance salesman, Whoa. who is trying to look on the bright side <laughs> and ultimately can't because over time it erodes to the point where he sees no hope, no way to affect his future in a positive direction and ultimately as we've talked about he ends by taking his own life so tragic in that way he can't use the gift to see the future the way that he wants to
0: Man, i don't know i feel that i might be on the other end of you guys because while i do think that his character saw this as a curse I think it was much more of an issue of just a self-fulfilling prophecy. It would be one thing if he was 25, but he's like 50-something years old. He has had this gift, this ability, for a long time. I mean, we get to the end, he has this vision of... Mulder dying. And in his vision, we see Mulder get his throat cut and that doesn't happen. Right. So and this is back to my point of like there is evidence in the episode and I think even before where his visions haven't come true. Right. Right that he has been able to
2: affect the future. But maybe he hasn't teamed up with with Mulder and Scully to be able to advance to the next level. Maybe, like you're saying, like he spent his 20s and 30s trying to hone this gift. In his 40s and 50s, all he sees is failure. And at this moment, he can finally achieve change-making, but he doesn't get to see it himself because he's two glasses half empty.
0: I think I will agree that he's definitely a sad character. But in my mind, it's just like, man, what a missed opportunity to really fight crime, do some, do some fight crime,
2: save people. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, just to be know. clear, you're not, you're not disagreeing in the tragedy element. You're disagreeing that he actually could change the future and he didn't know it. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I, I yeah. buy that. I think that's a good. I'll
0: buy that too. In the end, when he kills himself, I think hints in the episode that he, he already knows how he's going to go. And it's just like, well, just don't do that.
2: You know, there are worse ways to go, but I can't think of a more undignified one than autoerotic asphyxiation. Why are you telling me that?
0: Why do you all think this was the best episode? Well, I think you point at that ending is also powerful because it's with Scully, who is the skeptic. Yeah. The entire episode she doesn't believe that this guy's real mm. and all of a sudden this walking in on someone who's just
2: died and right. he predicted it to a T. Pretty much. In the very last scene though, I, I really love how the end of the episode mm-hmm. they have Yappy doing a commercial, <laughs> which was very nineties. They captured it perfectly, this commercial Cleo vibe. Yeah, this Cleo. <laughs> <laughs> and Yappy is going on and on and you know, all flamboyant about how he can predict the future. It's just an amazing contrasted with Peter Boyle's character who was flying under the radar. He wasn't trying to get hired. They actually lucked into finding out that he was psychic who tragically had this ability but didn't really try with it. We have these kind of two ends of the spectrum, which in a way sort of explains why some of these more fringe paranormal parapsychology kinds of things don't get the kind of respect that they might merit – because we have these flamboyant, extreme frauds that are money makers, money makers, and creating commercials. And I love it how at the end Scully's picking up the phone, and you're like, "Oh my God, is she going to call this other psychic?" <laughs> but then she throws the phone at the TV. I thought it was awesome.
1: Yeah, that was a good. That was a good ending. And we haven't talked about the serial killer. Oh, what a <laughs> spooky serial killer! Because you see him walking down the street, and he's just this rando
0: that would just yeah, just blends right in. Never expected. Yeah. Did you guys recognize him? I did not. I recognized him as he was one of the vampires in the Jim Carrey movie Once Bitten. Oh my god,
2: you were going deep for that
0: one!
1: Wow, is that pre Ace Ventura?
2: Yes. Oh, this was his first feature film. You know what? He was very understated. Like this is the era of like Hannibal Lecter, serial killer, who is you know this Mm -hmm. this prominent figure, and this guy is like he makes a good puppet. Like you, he you kind of get that feel from him that he's sort Mm -hmm. of. You know, he blends in. Could could be anybody. I thought it was a nice, subtle performance. You've come to me because you're searching for someone. But don't worry. This person will find you. It's a relative or a close friend.
1: Actually, a guy okay, I'm going to kill. Okay. Yeah, I agree. So
2: overall, the casting was, was great. As far as what makes this the best episode, the writing... The dialogue. I mean, this is, if you're paying attention, like this is very well written. And I should have went back to see who the writer is, but I I thought it was an excellent episode uh, of a show I already like, but it really captured me. Uh, There was one line, I don't know if you guys caught it, where Mulder and Peter Boyle's character, Brookman, were going back and forth on this kind of Brookman being fatalist about the future. And Mulder says something to him like, you know, I believe in your ability, but not your attitude. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> that is amazing. I'm going to try to memorize that one and pull it out when needed, for example, on a podcast. Yeah, and that's just another <laughs> indicator.
1: <laughs> that's just another indication of how this episode comes full circle in a lot of different ways. Dom UK said it came together well with the the final ending with Yappy to show the contrast between a real person who can do this and, and a fraudulent person. And so when he says, uh, look, I believe in your ability, that, that idea of belief when Mulder in his office at the FBI has that thing that says, I want to believe and here he says, I believe in your ability but just not in your attitude. So again, that, that almost brings it back full circle with the entire theme of the show. So that's what makes it a great episode too.
2: Absolutely.
0: It's nice to meet people who really believe in something, isn't it? Well, I think we all enjoyed this episode. For sure. It was very overwhelmingly voted as one of the best of the entire series. So that leads us to talk about the worst. But before we get to the worst, Greg, are you enjoying a new craft soda? I am enjoying a new craft soda. Really quick, this is episode two, where does it,
1: uh, where does it begin? Does it begin in Latin America? It does. Fantastic. So I'm yeah. sure more, some might disagree with my choice here, but to be honest, I was really in the mood for one. So today I am enjoying a, a lovely Jaritos. It's gone. Which is, uh, you it's Mexican natural flavor soda oh. with real sugar. It's made in El Paso. Uh, no, but I'm sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> it's made in Mexico. I was like, I thought it was made in Mexico. Distributed in El Paso. Mm. Not New York City.
0: Ah, New York City.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, again, if people could argue if it's a craft soda or not. But all I know is you can take a look at this cup. So,
2: yeah, drained it.
1: In recognition that this episode, this worst episode begins in Latin America, I have chosen a Latin American beverage exciting
0: (laughs) well our our worst episode also comes from season three it is episode 18 and i believe i'm pronouncing this correctly teso dos
2: bichos bichos
0: could be all right here's this worst episode
2: (laughs) hold on hold on ecuador is south america is it not yeah. Sure. Is that still Latin America?
0: Yes. Yeah. I
2: got it right. When, it's okay. Where does Lat hold on, just for my own edification, where does Latin America end?
0: Uh Mexico. Uh Antarctica.
2: All of South America is Latin America.
1: All of Central and all of South America is Latin America. And
0: oh, Spain was well, is Spain and Portugal?
2: No. That's not Latin America. It couldn't be America.
0: No, it cannot uh, that's right. Spain cannot yeah. be Latin America. <laughs> 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 okay all right all right teso
1: dos bichos so our worst episode starts in the hills of ecuador at an archaeological dig in the land of the sacona indians they find an artifact with an amuru urn with the skull of a female shaman the indigenous people do not want to disturb this urn but the obviously soon to be dead dr roosevelt wants to take it back to a museum to protect it his liaison and interpreter alonzo bilak warns him but he wants it anyway the sacona have this little ceremony where they drink some ecto-cooler and then Dr. Roosevelt is eaten by a panther or a jaguar. Can't remember. Nonetheless, the urn is taken to Boston and a security guard finds another archaeologist who has died mysteriously. So Mulder and Scully are brought into the case because it's spooky. They visit Belak, who's acting suspicious because he's been drinking his own homemade ecto-cooler. Another archaeologist dies, so Belak seems like he's the culprit. In and around the museum, our heroes are being followed by mysterious first-person eyes. They're like yellow eyes that are looking at them from above and all around them. And later on, Scully and Mulder and the Guard, they keep finding blood and remains, and eventually they find rats coming out of every toilet, and then there's dead rats in the toilet. It's a mess. Finally, eventually Belak and his assistant Mona they disappear so Mulder and Scully go underneath the museum into the sewers and pipes and they find them all dead just then 100 cats attack them (laughs) big cats no house cats regular sized cats (laughs) and they escape and later on no one can find the cats the authorities chalk up all of these deaths to wild animals and the urn is returned to the Sakona people oh man that's the episode the uh,
2: I love the ecto cooler line (laughs) That.
0: Exactly oh, man. It was. I tell you, as a kid, if I walked into your house and you had an ecto-cooler high C in your fridge, you might as well have been Jeff Bezos. I thought you were just the wealthiest people I could have ever met. <laughs> yeah, birthday parties <laughs> only. I was. We were only allowed crystal light in my house.
2: Oh yeah, we had. We rocked the crystal light.
1: Did you ever jump into the pool backwards like they did in the crystal light? Take the plunge. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> Obviously,
1: because I would always do that. I'd say, "Hey brother, hey brother, crystal light!" <laughs> <laughs>
0: you and did. then he would call me a tool. If my gauge for individual wealth was having <laughs> ecto cooler
2: in your house. I didn't have a pool. <laughs> <laughs> no, we went to the city pool and I was trying to impress the lifeguards. So, no, I didn't play that game. There. <laughs> just Dom's <it's> like squints
1: <laughs> walking around. <laughs> so, I just need to talk about the very first second of this episode. I got to say, I mean, I hate to keep bringing it up in episode after episode, but oh my gosh, one second in pan flute. <laughs> right away, which means oh. you know it's mystical. I mean, the, the ex- <laughs> or that Picard's about to show up playing hot cross buns or whatever. <laughs> and I just remembered something. This is in the early nineties, just like our other episodes that we've watched that have the flippin' pan flute in them. They're all from the early nineties. Yeah. And if you're ever if you're wondering in my life in my history, what Christmas present earns the award for? obviously spent the least amount of effort (laughs) it belongs to an older brother of mine who it was in the early 90s when he purchased my mother on cassette zomphir king of the pan (laughs) Flutes, and he said merry christmas mom i got you (laughs) zomphir
2: That's oh, we got to find an opening track to compare it to this pan flute. Oh, my goodness.
1: And you know what? That was in the early 90s.
0: They were all the rage. In the yeah. 80s, it was chest hair. In the 90s,
2: <laughs> we evolved to pan flute. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, wait, not just pan flute. This is synthesized flute music. So they're showing off <laughs> their ability to use keys and synthetic music. With flute-related tones. (laughs) So that
1: was just right off the bat in the Ecuadorian highlands.
2: Well, then in the opening scene when they're drinking the Yahe uh, ecto-cooler, did you notice it was thick and mucousy? Yeah. It was viscous. Yes, the viscosity was disgusting. I just was totally grossed out. You
0: wouldn't try it. <laughs> you
1: wouldn't. You wouldn't try the yahe? the follow-up hit to Outcast Hey ya! In case you were
0: wondering, Yah-hey. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been drinking yahay, Mulder? Greg, you made the connection of pan flute being a reoccurring theme. I also noticed another reoccurring theme that in the beginning, when they summoned the giant
2: cat, which is a puma, we just see a shadow. They went into the yellow predator cam. Viewing you through its alien lens. And then they're just trying to show it off for TV.
1: And this is the time of Predator 2 starring none other than... Danny Glover. And Gary Busey. (laughs) Gary Busey. (laughs) I have no comment. I just wanted to mention Gary Busey. (laughs) Oh
2: Oh my gosh. So actually, now that I'm thinking about it, we don't know what... We all assume it was a big cat, but all we saw was a shadow in the tent killing Dr. Roosevelt. But it was... Could it have been... A simple house cat with a large shadow? No. That thing was freaking huge. Because- It was
0: a house cat. But when the cat attacked the doctor, you have to assume that they are the same distance away from the canvas of the tent. So the shadows would be distorted proportionally. Unless it was coming from an angle.
1: Or if it's one hundred cats acting like one big cat and just moving in tandem in the shadow.
0: Like they morph together like Voltron?
1: I can only assume. That's
0: Yes. Captain Planet, that's and it. When your cats <laughs> combine.
1: <laughs> and the worst <laughs> and the worst skill of Captain Planet is Heart. Yep. Earth. That's it. No. Nope. <laughs>
2: Come on, <laughs> oh, come on, guys! Heart's important. No, it's not.
0: No. But anyway, I want to get back to the shadow because oh. if the cat was at an angle, uh-huh. then we wouldn't have seen the full body of the cat.
2: I mean, I want to believe it's. I I want to believe it's a a giant cat, but I now in this moment believe it to be a house cat. Final answer. Okay.
0: Well, I am going to implore our audience. Okay. Season three, episode 10. You only need to invest five minutes. Let us know. Is it a full size? No. Jaguar. You have to cooger? watch the whole
2: episode for it to be a house cat. You have to finish the episode. That's key. Everyone knows the size of a house cat. That's not the shadow. Okay. It might be a, a, a minx or a bobcat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're very confused right now. Oh my gosh, as we switch gears just a little bit, I wanted to talk about Dr. Roosevelt and also the attitude of these archaeologists. I think in a lot of non-Western worlds, what we've seen throughout the 19th and the 20th century is imperialism, and especially when Western archaeologists would come in and kind of take what they want, and this is just what has happened, especially in the 1800s and early 1900s. They take what they want to protect it, to save it. The British and the British Empire and the Spanish and the Spanish Empire, what they do is they take artifacts and they put them in museums to ostensibly protect them, but that's not how indigenous peoples feel about it. So that imperialism comes to a head here in this episode, and Dr. Roosevelt Has that because here is the choice that we're given. They're like, well, there's a big oil pipeline coming right through here. We have a choice of either leaving it here where it'll be destroyed by the oil pipeline. Or we can take it back to Boston and we can protect it. And I think that's a false dichotomy that has been created by the folks who are down there from the United States. That doesn't actually give, in this case, the Sakona people the opportunity to keep this artifact, this obviously important artifact for themselves. So I think it highlights an important historical thing that has totally happened.
0: Well, you're saying it's a false dichotomy. Well, then what's the other option?
1: Don't build the oil pipeline
0: right through a sacred burial ground. With, with the false dichotomy, they bring the urn back and they're working on it. This is three weeks later. So the urn is back in the museum. They're working on it. There's an assistant named Mona who also is wearing an oversized flannel. So just another Ooh, crossover. Good from- catch. Good catch. <laughs> But then when Mulder and Scully show up to investigate the mysterious death of one of the doctors, they go and visit Belak, who looks terrible. Yeah, he's
2: in bad shape.
0: Right, because we we find out later that he's been drinking the...
2: Yahe? You're drinking Yahe?
0: Thick, viscous... Ectoplasm. (laughs) Ecto-cooler. They call it the vine of the soul. Yes. When they go visit him, this is the first time that we've seen this character speak English. And what accent do you think he was really going for? Just seemed more of a drugged up macho man, Randy Savage. Macho man didn't do drugs. Um...
1: (laughs) 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 James, I agree that his accent was a little bit hard to detect I mean, it seems like he was All over the place He was was trying to Almost like a mystical Spanish breathy accent to it That got even breathier And breathier and breathier As he was filled (laughs) by more
0: of the vine of the soul As the episode went along That was the macho man quality
2: that I picked up on Yeah The breathiness Got it if you think I did this, then you're a fool. Maybe the wrong wrestler, though, because I Googled this and this is ayahuasca the or DMT, which was used in Native American tribes and indigenous tribes to actually do some spiritual exploration. So actually, it is a vine and it was used for some of the religious ceremonies and spiritual ceremonies. So in this case though what we see is after Dr. Belac comes back from Ecuador, he is full blown addict and I, I think that his accent is all messed up because he is getting more and more addicted to this substance.
1: Yeah. And it adds I mean it adds mm. to the mystical nature because when Scully and Mulder walk in, the place is all smoky. He is looking really really mm. what what would be a good word to describe him? He's looking Sweaty? Yeah, a little bit of that. And by that point, the pan flute is going nuts. So like all of these (laughs) things together tell us that we're in a very mystical place.
2: Right. Way to go, Belak. I feel like they're setting us up for Belak to be the one involved with these murders. Could he be related to the attack with the cat in Ecuador Then there's another murder and one of the other museum doctors is gone missing and they're in the forest looking for the body and they come upon a place where there happens to be intestines strung about in the trees above. And so the blood drips down, falls right on Mulder's cheek and he, you know, is like, what is it? Is it rain? And he he looks at it and boom, rubs the fingers, blood. Predator style. Predator style. Again, there's a lot of predator homages in this episode. <laughs> I mean, this again was another fun directorial choice of let's just string some intestines like garland through the trees. Just <laughs> see what happens.
1: How to get up there? Cats. No one knows. Ah. Cats. Does it make sense? No. Cats climb trees. While they're walking through the woods, they see, they see the yellow eyes looking at them from above. And then they later find the intestine. It's like, yeah. what
2: are those eyes? House cat, apparently, and then <laughs> and it gets weirder. So then we get Mona in the museum, and she's hearing a, a ruckus. And earlier in the episode, the doctor that was you know all strewn about in the trees is trying to start his car, and there is a dead rat in it. Oh, that's weird, gross, dead rat. So now we fast forward to Mona in the, in the museum, and she's hearing a ruckus. She goes into the museum bathroom, and what does she discover? Rats coming oh. out of the toilet. I
0: would never.
2: In my life,
0: I was terrified. Go to the bathroom <laughs> in that bathroom. I would hold it for a three-hour road trip before I would go in that oh, bathroom.
1: So disgusting. But he cannot perform. So all of this is building up to this idea that people have disappeared. Scientists have disappeared. There's obviously this curse that came from them removing the skull of the female shaman from the Ecuadorian highlands. To be honest, there's some spookiness to it. There are obviously some deaths. so There's some real stakes. Now we have disappearance of both the assistant Mona and Bilek. They're later going to find them dead. And I'm looking at the clock of the episode. How are they going to wrap this up? Because there's like... Five minutes left. <laughs> and if I may speak very, very plainly here, up to this point, I thought this was a good episode. I thought this was an interesting episode. I thought this was a, a mystical episode, a good X File episode. And they had built just a great beginning for the first 40 minutes of this episode. And then we only got four minutes left. Well, cats. Get after it. I just have never seen a show that has dramatically turned so much from from good to bad because the last four or five minutes
0: were insane. I completely agree. It was okay, but when they get into the sewer, I was genuinely scared. I was reaching for the remote to turn the volume down because that's what I do when I watch scary movies. And... (laughs) I was expecting it to be a jaguar. I was expecting it to be just this monstrous ghost cat because the one doctor who had his intestines strewn up in the trees, he was attacked at his car and drug out of his car. Dom, I don't care what you say. It was a giant cat in the very beginning that killed the doctor. Mm -hmm. These bodies are going missing. Greg, I think you're right. They got to the end. They're crunched for time and like, listen, we can't get the jaguar out of the prop shop. (laughs) Well, let's just go get a bunch of house cats then and we'll just make do. And I was so angry that they got me worked up for these Jim Henson Muppet reject cats that they used at the end to attack Mulder and Scully.
2: (laughs) I couldn't disagree more what this episode has everything you want
1: this episode has everything (laughs) it has
2: native (laughs) indigenous (laughs) this episode has drugs it has international travel it has house cats gone crazy everything you could ever want it has first person camera monster chases it has raining intestines from the trees in the forest it has the most disgusting bathroom you've ever seen on tv what more could you ask for the house cats all three of us were shocked by that twist, were we not shocked <laughs> because it's absurd, it's absurd <laughs> and it's hilarious. And the X Files walks that line that's a dramatic show, no doubt, but they work hard at working in some humor and flipping things on their head, and that's exactly what happened here. House cats, it doesn't get more <laughs> X Files than feral, domesticated. Long, medium, and short-haired cats.
1: Dom, tell me more about these feral domesticated cats that you speak of.
2: (laughs) What the hell is that supposed to mean? They start domesticated, (laughs) they reject their owners, they eat their face off, and they go into the sewers. Like-minded, feral, domesticated (laughs) cats. This this is our 10th episode. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I I I'm speechless.
1: Editor's note, Dom was actually a writer of this episode. I
2: <laughs> This is not this is not this is not the best episode, but I enjoyed this episode. Wow. Not afraid to say it.
1: I know it's weird to say, but I agree with James. I agree with James. <laughs> At least we have a two to one vote. Because sometimes we have somehow a third vote. Did you like this episode or hate this episode? I loved it. I hated it. Well, tiebreaker. I didn't watch it.
2: (laughs) We're thinking this guy might be a Satanist. What with the eyeballs. Okay. I like being the minority still in the right. I'm okay with that.
1: No, it's it's not scary anymore. It's, it's ridiculous. Just kick the cat, Scully. Come on. Number two, it doesn't make sense with the creepy yellow eyes that we see throughout. Like there's yellow eyes looking from above. There was not a cat up in the tree looking down at Scully. So, like, it doesn't fit together. And then, as James has said earlier, like, it was obviously a big cat that attacked Dr. Roosevelt at the very beginning. The,
0: this herd of cats had eviscerated half a dozen people. But yet, Mulder and Scully just get, oh, they got a little scratch. A little scratch. They and and they're out. totally no, fine. They, they escape back up the chute. Using the other deaths of the episode as our baseline. Yes. Mulder and Scully should be dead right now. Could
2: be dead right now. From this herd of cats. Should they be. They could be dead right now. They had an escape hatch that the others didn't have. This herd of <laughs> cats. Belak had it and his eyes were eaten out. There was two of them and one of him. What I think, what? Is, <laughs> two of what I think is, I think I think the herd of cats took down Belak because he was instrumental in removing the pottery from Ecuador. And they knew that. I think the spirit of the sh- the shaman was present with all of that and was inspiring the cats to do the the dark bidding. Huh. And really, when Belak dies, that unlocks some of the oh uh, negative mojo, right? <laughs> so they're scaring Scully and Mulder, but they're really not as interested in their death as they are the museum staff. So what about the dog? The dog is in on it. He's a museum dog. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing seems to make sense to you.
1: Now, if we go with that theory, then at that point, once the people responsible for working on this artifact are dead, the curse is kind of broken, and then the spirit knows that it's going to be on the way home. My final question is, here we have the Boston police at the end of the episode, and they say, "Well." Looks like wild animals again. It was like, what? That's it? Case closed. <laughs> and the, the way the authorities handled this, in fact, I would say in both episodes, maybe it's to make Mulder and Scully look good, but the local yeah. authorities in both of these episodes did not instill confidence in my local law enforcement because <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: if this is the way it truly is, we're, we're- All I know
0: is if my killer doesn't just sit around and wait for the police to show up, My murder's not getting
2: solved. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as a fan of the show, that's constant throughout the X-Files is the local police. They always look bumbling. And the X-Files and the FBI agents consistently, really only Mulder and Scully consistently look like geniuses. And everyone else pretty much in law enforcement is kind of a a dud.
1: What does "teso Dos Bichos mean? Because I have no idea. The title of the episode.
0: Well, that's a great question because I went to Google Translate and Google translated to Tough of Animals.
2: Hmm. Tough
0: of Animals. And then I just decided then I'm just going to look up what the writer of the episode said. Hmm. And he said it's an ancient Portuguese that translates to burial mound of small animals. And Google didn't pick that up. Google did not pick that up. Wow. So small animals being house cats.
2: I'm telling you, the house cat was... Feral,
0: lonely house cats. That's right.
2: (laughs) All right, guys. We've talked about the best and worst episodes, and why don't we talk about the series as a whole?
1: Okay.
0: (laughs) I mean obviously the series is amazing dom you Mm -hmm. said at the very beginning undisputed best drama fox has ever produced which uh is close to being true i mean this is an amazing show it lasted a long time many many awards i think for the time it was a little bit different i think that there's been mutations of this show like i think of fringe specifically as just like inspired by the X-Files, but this show really popularized the Supernatural. I think it does a really good job of, it walked that line of, it's obviously going to lean Supernatural, but I think with Scully... It gives you that out. Like it's really good making yourself ask where you are on the Mulder Scully spectrum when you watch this show. For me, who is pretty skeptical of all that kind of stuff, it's really nice to like have Scully and her interpretation come through because it gives you something to hold on to while you're really in the Mulder world. Yeah. So I think like the show just really does a good job of finding that line and really exploring both of those. yeah. But I'm curious, like, watching this show as a teenager, how did this show affect your view of things that are supernatural?
1: So when I was a teenager and I was watching this show, I really, really enjoyed this show because of its spookiness. Because, you know, a lot of times teenagers think they're invincible. Until you watch The X-Files and you're like, oh... There's some bizarre stuff that happens in this world that we cannot uh, explain and we cannot understand. This makes you think about those things a little bit more. Not about like the super goofy stuff, but there's a certain level of Bermuda Triangle-like spookiness in this show that really hit home with me as an invincible teenager. And what really, really did it for me was the theme song. We didn't talk about the theme song, but the theme theme song makes this show... No I say this is about every theme song, but it's like one of my favorite theme songs. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: do say
2: you really love a lot
0: of theme songs. I think of the shows that we've watched, this is probably the one that within the first few notes, almost everyone knows what it is. Yeah.
1: It's more likely than any other show to give me goosebumps just from its intro alone. Only placing second to Unsolved Mysteries, because Unsolved Mysteries, oh my gosh, now that theme song.
0: Oh, just, just goose pimples everywhere. I hate Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs>
2: what? How do you hate it? No way.
0: Here's why. Because I watch Unsolved Mysteries and I don't pay attention to the title of the show. It drives me nuts that I'm watching these things. And then I realize at the end, like, oh. oh, yeah, it's an unsolved <laughs> mystery. Yeah. I don't know what happened. <laughs>
2: ah, they warned me.
0: But I, I feel like for me, I really liked, I mean, this series, the questions I mean, we alluded to in the beginning, because it makes me really sad because I, I want Bigfoot to be real. Of all the supernatural things, I just wish Bigfoot is real. <laughs> How much more exciting is life if there is this old species of animal that's just been around for millennia, just hiding in our backyards, and we've just never really seen it or caught it. Harry and Hendersons? <laughs>
2: Perhaps.
0: Isn't life so much more interesting with Bigfoot and aliens and ghosts and all that stuff?
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, X-Files definitely teases that, and there is an x file episode's episode for you, James, a Bigfoot episode in New Jersey. I'm going to encourage you and our (laughs) listeners to Google the X-Files New Jersey Bigfoot episode, season
0: one. Season one. Yeah.
2: My thought here is I love the dynamic duo of of Mulder and Scully, and I'm curious, what makes them so magnetic? We've seen a lot of duos, you know, Miami Vice, for one. I mean, what what makes this duo different?
0: I think this show is really, it's a credit to the writing. I think this show, and even in the worst episode, the writing and the dialogue that those two characters have is really elevated above other shows that we've watched.
1: And I think it probably is
0: groundbreaking in a number of ways.
1: This is a real modern kind of Twilight Zone that just really exceeds that. There's some iconic episodes of Twilight Zone, of course, but this really brings a modern spin to it. Also, it brings a very, very brilliant and smart woman into it because a, a show in the 60s and 70s, you're not going to see that on TV as much. Look at what they did to the really smart woman in Magnum PI, Maggie. Remember Maggie?
2: Yeah, she's an afterthought. She
1: knew like so much more about military matters and and what is actually happening. But Chris Carter, when he created this, he took a step forward and Agent Scully became the presence in the room. Because Mulder's a little quirky. He believes a lot of things. And what they did most excellently, I have to imagine there was enormous pressure to get these two characters together in the first three years. Oh, sure. Because so many shows probably did that. Now, I know there's a relationship later on, but yeah. like, it's not season two, season three. <laughs> the fact that they held back, yeah. that keeps keeps some sexual tension, yeah. but also it focuses on the most important thing, which is that the truth is out there. So it's great.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think they really work the yin and the yang perfectly with this recipe with, with Mulder and Scully, the casting, the dialogue, all that matters. But really the acting, when they bring it to life on screen, I mean – We've talked about Anderson and how electrifying she is on camera, but Duchovny is the same. This elevated him to international sex symbol forever. (laughs) Songs were made of him after this and just so many pop culture (laughs) things. But um, I agree. I think this is a time where a strong female lead who is not overtly sexualized, this friendship and their appreciation for one another as partners it's really wonderful to watch and then of course the goofy twists with house cats and things i'm pretty sure vince gilligan the uh, breaking bad guy was a writer on this show oh he was and so there's a lot of talent that was involved with with the show i love the show i love the duo so many good things to say. We've already said a lot, so I'll I'll shut up. We can move mm. on. But.
0: And I'm just I just want to protect the integrity of Vince Gilligan. He did not write "Teso Dos Bichos." No, he didn't. He had nothing to do with that episode. So I do not want his name tainted with the horribleness <laughs> <No>. <laughs> of the house cat. Your opinion. <laughs> Now, we should say we did make sure that we only chose episodes that were in the early 90s. And it uh, was interesting that okay. yes. most worst episodes were basically in the 2000s. But if of the worst in the
2: 90s, overwhelming.
0: Thank you for
1: clarifying that. That's, more- That's fine. Even if it's true,
2: I'm going to stand firm on my opinion in the face of scrutiny.
1: Well... I think we've already answered the question if you all like the show, and I assume both of you would watch it again. I know
0: I would. Knowing that there's a Bigfoot episode out there, I'll probably watch it. Oh, yeah. Tonight.
2: Now, if you don't mind, I have to get an APB out on a white male, 17 to 34, with or without a beard, maybe a tattoo, who's impotent.
1: All right. So we here at the TV yearbook, we always like to give our superlative awards at the end of the episode, because just like your high school yearbook had superlative awards, as we discussed earlier, we give out our own awards, and we always start with the iconic award-winning award, <laughs> the Extra Mile <laughs> Award, which we give yes. <laughs> which we what? give to the extra who is in the background, who is just doing a really, really great job in a number of different ways and we want to recognize them with the Extra Mile Award. James, do you have an Extra Mile Award?
0: I do. I do have an Extra Mile Award because it is tough being an extra, being in the bottom of the totem pole. And Greg, you mentioned earlier that the local police departments really had a tough time solving cases and getting things done. And I think it's because almost every law enforcement agency that is local is suffering from massive, massive budget cuts. Because (laughs) I really paid attention to the police officers that were walking around in the background. Mm -hmm. There was one individual. He wore many hats. He was a cop. He was a fireman. He was a photographer taking forensic photos. I think as the camera moved, he would run off, (laughs) change costumes, walk back on the scene, do a job, run off, change costumes, and come back. You got to watch carefully, but I am 98% positive it's the same dude just fulfilling all of these roles. That would be impressive.
2: Well, I have an award, and it's already been mentioned a little bit, but this is the Most Likely to Win the War on Drugs Award, and that goes to, in the worst episode, the Prop Master, who created the ectoplasmic gelatin, the Vine of the Soul drugs. That was the most disgusting drug I've ever seen, of really any substance ever. The viscosity... And it just, and then the sweat. Oh yeah. Let's just drench this actor in disgusting sweat. I mean, you could smell it on screen. So, uh, <laughs> prop master, props to you.
0: Well, my uh, award is the least likely to spend money on necessary equipment. Every time a flashlight was needed, the batteries were on their last life. <laughs> Did you notice that? <laughs> no, I didn't no. notice.
2: <laughs> no, I, I mean, missed that. I it,
0: mean, it made me so angry. Can't someone just go to the stop at the convenience store and just pick up some D batteries <laughs> to put in your... You, what's it called? What's the big flashlight called? Mag Light. Yeah. yeah. I have to
1: assume... That this production manager or whoever it is, the equipment manager, I think he's got to be a parent because I don't know about you guys. There are zero flashlights at work in my house because the kids will take them. Oh, yeah. And they will leave <laughs> them on forever. I haven't seen a working <laughs> flashlight in 20 years. Backstage at <laughs> the X-Files uh, set, there's just children who are just wasting all of the batteries. <laughs> <laughs> that explains so much. It's got to. So I, I do have one more award to give and a little context to help us out. Overall, when we look at this series, The X-Files, tell me if I'm wrong. But it seems like there's a guarantee that five people are going to die, minimum per episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to happen. my predictions were a little bit off when it came to i was like oh that guy's gonna die i was probably like two for three because like the second that dr roosevelt in the first episode was like no we're taking this artifact back i don't care what these indigenous i was like well he's out this is just (laughs) and this is gonna be quick and i was right so my award is going to not the character actually My award is going to the actor. The actor's name is Ron Sauvet, and he plays Tim Decker, who is the security guard in the worst episode. My award, most surprised that his character survived the episode, because (laughs) when I think about this guy, he got this job at the X-Files, and he's like, oh, X-Files, okay. And he's like, all right, here's the deal. You're a security guard and you only have a couple of scenes. (laughs) And he's like, all right, well, this is easy.
2: (laughs) I know where this is going.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he made me miss my 100% because I knew that this guy was going to die. This first guy was going to die. I knew a second guy was going to die. I knew a third guy was – I think I was actually three for four. And my final thing was like, that security guard, there's no way he's surviving. And I'm sure when he read through the script – he also was so surprised that he survived the episode. So he just
0: keeps flipping, flipping the pages. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. Yeah. Am I a lead in this show? I'm still alive.
2: I am the third wheel for Boulder and Scully.
0: Yes. I get my own chair.
1: And by the way, in case you were wondering, why does Greg keep mentioning the security guard in the synopsis of the episode at the beginning? Because he's not that important. It <laughs> <laughs> was
0: for, specifically for this
2: moment. For this award. <laughs> Full circle. All
0: right. Well, that brings us to the end of our X-Files Award. Our next episode, we continue <laughs> with our 90s sci-fi and we talk about Babylon 5. Oh, Never heard of it. You guys know anything about Babylon 5? No,
1: I do not want to watch this show. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: I know nothing about it. <laughs> well, Babylon 5, not a show either of us watched. There is apparently a huge cult following of this show. And for 90s sci-fi, this is one of the staples. Whether we like it or not So they say So we're gonna watch it And we're gonna give you At least a 10 minute episode On Babylon 5 We're gonna guarantee At least 10 minutes Uh, But anyway (laughs) If you would please Check us out on Facebook Or Twitter Or Instagram At the TV Yearbook And now you can find us On Patreon (laughs) Heyo And please Let us know What you think of the show And what you would like us To do in the future We really would love For you to rate And review the show Wherever you get your podcast five stars please we do pay attention to those reviews and we would love to hear from you and speaking of reviews greg you finished your fruit punch soda a while ago (sighs) i did it's been gone a
1: long time and i regret it but the haritos natural flavor soda with real sugar again just like every other craft soda it has real sugar i have not had a high fructose corn syrup situation which is really the goal let me tell you a couple things about this Number one, it was delicious. Number two, uh, compared to other craft sodas, this has like half the sugar, which is really refreshing in a lot of different ways. And other than natural flavors and some benzoate, there's actually nothing in this but sugar, so I don't know how they do it. It's really quite impressive, but it's a good soda. Recommended. My one criticism is, would you look at my cup?
2: Mm orange
0: oh it looks
1: like it's been filled with tang for the last week and then I just let it sit Mm. there
0: we've all seen that (laughs) cup yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) what